Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we're going to be talking about U.S.-Mexico relations uh, from the Cold War to now. And we had a super interesting interview with Dr. Anna Covarrubias, um, who is a scholar from Mexico who was recently uh, visiting in, at the University of Denver, and I had the opportunity to sit down. We had an almost hour-long interview. It was super interesting, but before we get to that, I definitely wanted to go over um some basic stuff regarding U.S.-Mexico relations because she does mention a lot of terms and stuff. So I think I thought it was important that uh, we talk about those specifically. So when she talks about it during our interview, you can go, oh, that's what she's talking about. Now, the U.S.-Mexico relationship has been probably one of the closest uh, in terms of our foreign policy, in terms of our relations, really from the founding of the country. Uh, Mexico uh, gained its independence in the early 1800s from Spain and then fought uh, the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, and I believe the start of the war is 1848. So that led us to acquiring uh, most of what is now the Western United States uh, and the states of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and kind of Southern California. Uh, in regards to that, uh, we obviously focus on U.S.-Mexico relations um, from the Cold War uh, now, um, specifically regarding um, some stuff that we mentioned, and one of the things that um, we that is important is the Bracero program. Now, the Bracero program was something that was started um, during World War II because of uh, the need for labor in the United States during the war because so many U.S. citizens were going to fight in the war. So it was this legal way for U.S. or for Mexican uh, citizens to go back and forth between the United States um, and work and also go back legally. Now, a big issue with this um, after was of the United States ended the agreement and the program in 1964. And really, ever since, the United States and Mexico haven't had a bilateral agreement about immigration. It's always been usually the United States dictating this policy. So that's been a big problem. And for the most, and obviously, we're not in the middle of a world war, so the demand for foreign labor has gone down. But there really hasn't been any legislation in both countries um, in terms of agreeing upon a legal way for immigrants from Mexico to work in the United States. So that's one aspect. Another big thing that we did talk about was um, Cuban and United States relation relations and, and the role that Mexico played. Now, obviously, in the backdrop of the Cold War, United States versus Soviet Union, um, there were different um, policies um, that the United States pursued um, both in the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, in the Eastern Hemisphere, really in the United States, this all goes back to the Monroe Doctrine, which was, I believe, charted out in like 1803, which basically stated that uh, anyone outside the uh, sphere of the United States would not be welcomed and in interfering in whatever role. So the United States basically says, if it's in South America, if it's in Latin America, we're going to be there. We're going to be dictating. And then if you're there, then we're going to have a problem with it. And this is kind of encompasses, for example, the Spanish-American War um, in 1900, um, where Spain or the United States fought Spain over several colonies, specifically Cuba and the Philippines. Um, obviously, with the Cold War, 
it's really interesting because obviously Cuba was really the only communist back state in the um, in the Western sphere of influence. Also a huge issue because it's 90 miles south of Florida. Um, and this all led to kind of the Cuban Missile Crisis um, and also really led to a very aggressive policy um, from the United States perspective, really in Latin America and South America. So any hint of communist influence had to be attacked militarily. And this led the United States to really pursue a very aggressive policy in terms of backing um, militias, in terms of backing military dictatorships, whether it was in Chile or other Latin American countries, in order to dissuade Soviet influence and the influence of communism really throughout the um, throughout the uh, Western Hemisphere. And this really leads to a complex relationship between the United States and Mexico because at this time, Mexico really had a more conservative government and they sort of played both sides in terms of satisfying leftist revolutionaries um, that pursued um, pursued kind of a or wanted to mimic the Cuban revolution in Mexico, but also conservative hardliners who didn't want any influence from, uh, you know, leftist or communist groups within Mexico. So Mexico and the, or Mexico kind of pursued this kind of back and forth between the United States and the um, Cuba. So Mexico kind of played this intermediary role and tried to come up with a policy that wasn't as militaristic as the United States and say, hey, here's an alternative to what you're pursuing. This might be a better way to ensure peace, diplomacy, and economic growth uh, within the United States uh, or within different countries, um, both in the United States and different countries in Latin America and South America, which were you know, going through all these civil wars between uh, communists and anti-communist uh, tendencies. But that didn't really work out. Obviously, the United States was kind of the top dog in the region, and they were going to dictate whatever policy it was. So it's kind of an interesting and complex relationship that Mexico and the United States happened uh, through the Cold War. Now, obviously, the Cold War ends in 1991 with the Soviet Union dissolving. Um, in that process, Cuba loses a lot of its backing and a lot of different um, you know, communist groups in South America and Latin America lose their funding. Um, and weapons um, and all of that. So that really changes the dynamic of the relationship between the United States and Mexico. And a big event in the early 90s was the U.S. or the Mexico financial crisis. Um, and this was a brutal economic recession um, in Mexico that really crippled its economy. But what came out of this was um, NAFTA, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement between the Canada, the United States, and Mexico, which was designed to, um, you know, create you know, free trade, which was obviously a huge part of the post-United States initiative with globalization in terms of uh, projecting neoliberal economic values kind of across the globe. So this was a really important event because it was a big trade agreement that, you know, really allowed, it helped, it helped, you know, all three countries, but it also hurt three countries. You know, it really depends on who you ask. Um, and we definitely went in the depth during the interview, but I definitely thought it was important to mention that as kind of a key event. And really just through the 90s up until now, United States and Mexico has one of the closest relationships in terms in, 
in, in regards to any relationship the United States has with any country across the globe, um, in terms of economics, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of politics, you know, the two really go hand in hand. And obviously, I think it's interesting we go into depth with, obviously, Donald Trump and his rhetoric that, you know, it hasn't really changed the relationship all that much, despite what, you know, Donald Trump has said, um, all the different things that has gone on. Um, and obviously, Another thing that was signed was the USMCA, which um, was the new trade agreement um, in place of NAFTA, um, which kind of was is essentially. I'm not too familiar with the you know the fine details of these, but it's been really good, or it's been you know essentially just replaced NAFTA. So to really summarize. We get into it. I didn't want to talk too much, obviously, but I thought there were some key events that you should know about and some things that um, kind of occurred um, throughout this relationship that you should know a little bit more about before we get into the interview. So in today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome Dr. Anna Kovarubias. <laughs> You. Um, she is a professor researcher at the Center for International Studies of El Colegio de Mexico since 1995. She's also the director um, of the center from 2012 to 2017. She also teaches international relations theory uh, and international relations in Latin America, the U.S. and Canadian foreign policy, and is considered to be one of the leading scholars on U.S.-Mexico relations. So welcome to the podcast and thank, uh, you. thank you for the time. Thank you very much for the invitation. Ah, so just an intro question. Uh, what is your favorite part of political science or his history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you end up deciding on Mexico and U.S. relations? Thank you. Well, uh, my favorite is, in general, um, international relations. I really enjoy the, 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 the international relation aspect of political science and history. International history, I find it really fascinating. Um, you can combine the conceptual and analytical, probably more theoretical um, aspect of the political science with the empirical data of history in IR. And history is absolutely essential to do IR. So I really like that combination, not being really theoretical, having like some kind of theoretical architecture, but being able to relate a story and to explain historical events um, that I really uh, enjoy. And in that sense, what I like it, what, what I like most, and probably this is diplomatic history, I'm not sure, is to go back to the documents and see how decisions were taken, um, what the perceptions of the uh, decision makers were of the other part or of an international event were. So um, I really enjoy that part very, very much, to reconstruct international events, foreign policies, IR. Mm -hmm. And to go along with that, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered and some common things that you um, have experienced in the field? Well, um, one of the major challenges I have found has to do with the state of archival research in Mexico. I mean, it's it's wonderful when you come to the U.S. or when you access the, the web page of the State Department and you find all these documents available to the public, 
regarding how foreign policy was made in this country and how decisions were taken and who the, uh, the, the officials were and what they thought, etc. In the case of Mexico, you don't have such an easy access to documents. For many years, we were a very closed political system and society, so it was not really very usual to go back to the documents and, you know, find out what the truth was, if you want to call it that way. And on the other hand, something that was quite rare in Mexico, and it's becoming more popular these days, but it was really, really rare before, is to have the biographies of the major um, decision makers. Whereas here in the U.S., everybody writes a biography. So you can know what Kissinger thought and what Kissinger said and Bill Clinton and even Hillary Clinton. I mean, everybody has a book and every president has a library. So you have all these primary resources, which for me are really valuable in my in my research. Awesome. So that's some great intro stuff. Mm -hmm. um, to switch it over to kind of Mexico-U.S. relations during the Cold War is kind of where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. um, just to start off, how much did the Cold War really influence uh, Mexico's policy both on, a foreign, on the foreign side of things and domestically? All right. Well, probably, and this is ironic, I think, um, the way in which the Cold War influenced Mexico was through U.S. policy, foreign policy towards the region, I would say, the way the U.S. behaved towards events in the region was very much the way in which the Cold War entered Mexico, uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the, the events of the region, for example, the Cuban Revolution. So I would say that the Cold War did have an influence in Mexican foreign policy, Indeed, it did. It, it had an influence and in Mexican foreign policy, but through events in the region. And I would say that there was never really a doubt in, in, in the heads of Mexican politicians about where Mexico's preferences lie. And that was like the Occident, Occident the, the Western Bloc. The Western Bloc. And um, they never sort of questioned Mexico's belonging to the Western Bloc and Mexico's position against communism as such. But we were not as paranoid, for example, as the United States. For, for obvious reasons, we were not the superpower. Um, but there were in Mexico many sectors in the population that were more leftist-oriented. I'm not sure whether they, they would have chosen communism as such. Uh, but indeed, uh, there were more leftist-oriented um, groups, even governmental officials. And um, there was, every time there was like um, um, an event, a regional event that questioned this polarization, this uh, bipolarity between capitalism and communism, all these sectors would, you know, come to the surface and sometimes confront each other, you know, the more conservatives versus the more leftists. Um, but in general, I would say that we, that Mexican politicians knew where Mexico had to be being neighbors of the United States in a bipolar world. It's interesting. I know you mentioned Cuba. Um, my mm -hmm. follow-up question would be, how did Cuba's uh, revolution led by Fidel Castro um, affect Mexico, given kind of the similar rhetoric between um, Castro and different leftist Mexican uh, groups? Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, it, it did very much. Um, the Cuban Revolution is one of those um, regional events I was talking about that really um, sort of um, took the Cold War into Mexico. The, the Cuban Revolution at the very beginning had a lot of support in Mexico because it was not seen as a communist revolution. Let's say 1959, early 1960s. Uh, the Mexican people, Mexican politicians in general, understood the Cuban Revolution as a nationalistic revolution. And it was, the, the language of, of revolution was very much um, used because politicians and people used to compare the, the, the Cuban Revolution to the Mexican Revolution. So they were saying, well, you know, they're, they're taking the same measures we took, like agrarian reform, um, a, a better um, labor law to protect the laborers, uh, the workers, um, you know, nationalizing foreign companies. All these kind of measures were similar in both revolutions. Um, so at the very beginning, the language that the Mexican government used was, this is a nationalistic revolution. This is not a communist revolution. We are similar. So we are not going to contribute to isolating Cuba because the Mexican revolution was isolated and that was um, something very um, prejudicial you know, to the, to, the, to the revolution, to the movement, to the country, etc. So yes, I would say that the Cuban revolution brought the Cold War into Mexico. As, the time, as time passed and Castro declares, declared himself a Marxist-Leninist, uh, Mexican society was divided sharply between those supporting the Cuban revolution, wanting to go to Cuba or going, you know, to Cuba, and those who were more conservative and they thought that really it was like um, a means of bringing communism into the continent. And they were opposed to that. So there were clashes, there were confrontations between these two groups. And the government had to find a very delicate equilibrium in its policies to satisfy both parts. But I have to say that one of the major personalities that supported the Cuban revolution was former president Lázaro Cárdenas. And Lázaro Cárdenas was at the time still a member of the PRI, of the governing party. So it was quite difficult to try and let Cárdenas support the Cuban revolution, create a national liberation movement, I think it was called, and um, sort of mobilize the left in favor of Cuba. And at the same time, Put him some limits. You know, you can you can support uh, Castro and you so, get, can support Cuba, but there are limits. And at the same time, try to uh, satisfy the right as well, and to avoid more divisions and more confrontations between left and right. So, if there is one event that actually uh, revealed a state of cold war in Mexico, it was the Cuban Revolution. Okay, so that's super interesting. Um, I know you mentioned some policies that the government was pursuing to um, kind of satisfy both groups. Can you elaborate more on what those policies look like for kind of both groups or um, what kind of role the government had to play in order to uh, find equilibrium, as you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the major instruments was actually foreign policy, foreign policy towards Cuba. And what the government did was to adopt publicly a policy of 
uh, supporting non-intervention in Cuba. So whatever happened in Cuba and then the reaction of the United States and many Latin American countries, especially at the OES, the Organization of American States, um, what they did, what, what they tried was to actually isolate Cuba, to expel the Cuban government from the organization, to impose economic sanctions on Cuba. And the, the, the position of the Mexican government is we are not supporting this policy that was led by the U.S. and followed by many Latin American, American countries because we defend the non-intervention principle. Mm -hmm. And Cuba is free to decide which model it wants. And the, the reason behind this position was that the Mexican government was really worried about the United States invading Cuba. And what the Mexican government did not want in the end was the U.S. invading Cuba or any other country in the region for that matter, because that would have been unacceptable. That really sort of threatened the, the rules of the game in the, in the inter-American system. So that was one way in which the, the, the Mexican government, on the one hand, satisfied the left because the left understood this policy as a progressive and nationalistic policy. And the right, on the other hand, um, accepted that it was an independent policy from the United States, that we were sort of um, demonstrating that we could take our own decisions. But I think in the end, um, what the right also knew was that the Mexican government was also anti-communist and the Mexican government was also worried about Cuba becoming communist because that would, in a way, um, perhaps create the conditions under which Cuba would promote subversion in Mexico. And that was not acceptable for the government or anyone else. So that was the kind of very delicate um, equilibrium that the government had to, to achieve. And I think foreign policy was uh, one instrument to do that. And the other was domestically to try to take some um, domestic politics more towards the left and then more towards the right and, you know, sort of be combining the two to ensure all parties concerned that um, in the end we were not going to actively support Cuba, we were not going to, you know, sort of uh, go directly against the United States because of Cuba, and that the government was going to be very careful in times of assuring that Cuba would not promote subversion in Mexico. Super interesting. Um, what kind of role did, I know you mentioned some of it, but what role did Mexico play kind of between the United States and Cuba? Was Mexico's goal always to prevent um, conflict between the two, um, or was it kind of something different? It was different. I would say that the role that Mexico played was one of um, proposing an alternative to the policy of isolation um, promoted by the United States. And um, in a way, this was taken by Castro's government as a way, as a, as a form of protection. You know, there was someone in the continent that was opposing intervention in Cuba. 
you know. So Castro publicly, in, in his official language, always said, you know, we recognize the Mexican government and we know the Mexican government is defending Cuba's self-determination and that is very valuable and, you know, all the world should see that there is an alternative policy to that of um, isolation. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether it was sort of playing um, a role between Cuba and the United States, but in a way, it sort of uh, provided with an alternative. Of course, the United States imposed the policy it wanted, and many Latin American countries supported the United States. But in the end, Mexico sort of... Um, yeah, sort of uh, demonstrated that there was, you know, some some alternative, some option, you know, um, to the to the position taken by the by the most Latin American countries and the United um, States. Um, at the same time, I have to say that despite this non-interventionist policy in Cuba and despite um, voting against. Um, U.S.-led policies at the Organization of American States, Mexico did negotiate with the United States. So in 1964, when the organization, the members of the organization, um, issued a resolution that asked all countries of the OAS to break diplomatic relations with Cuba, Mexico refused to go along. And Mexico refused to break relations with Cuba, and now we know that this this was this decision was negotiated in a way or informed or whatever you want to say with the United States and other members of the Organization of the American States. So the agreement was that it was really convenient if one country maintained relations with Cuba because that would be a way to know what the Cubans were doing, you know, because Mexico or the country that they, they chose would be the only way out and way in to Cuba because the rest, as they broke relations, they stopped any flights and any communications with the island. So what they thought, at least Brazil, Mexico, and the United States, was that it was really convenient that someone maintained relations with Cuba and that Mexico should be that country. And this was also very convenient to Mexico because uh, Mexico sort of maintained this uh, image of having an independent foreign policy that was very welcomed within Mexico. At the same time, uh, knew exactly what was happening with all the people coming and going to Cuba in terms of intelligence, you know, who were they, what were they doing, where were they going, etc and was able to share this intelligence with other Latin American countries and, of course, the United States. So it was a behind-the-scenes agreement by which everyone gained somewhat. And, of course, Cuba, although it's not nice to be spied on, um, Cuba gained um, an access to the outside world through Mexico. You know, we have to remember that in 1964, the alliance with the Soviet Union was not that strong yet. So Mexico was really the way out in the continent to, to, to Cuba. So I know we focused a lot on Cuba, but my follow-up would be, did Mexico try and provide these alternative policies in um, other states in Latin America or South America, or is it solely focused on Cuba? Um, well, no. Uh, Mexico, again... Um, tried, well, not tried, in, in, in fact did, um, 
um, proposed an alternative policy to that of the, of the United States during the Central American conflict in the late 1970s and during the 80s. Um, at the beginning, let's say 78 to 92, it was sort of um, bilateral, you know, or unilateral. Mexico supported the uh, Nicaraguan guerrillas, the Sandinistas, and the, uh, the Salvadoran guerrillas, and, you know, Mexico promoted change in the region. And from 1983 on, it was not only Mexico, but also Venezuela, um, Colombia, and Panama. And the four countries were called the Contadora Group. So uh, first as of unilaterally, and then in this multilateral group, what Mexico did was to say, listen, the aggressive policy of the United States that is trying to suffocate the new Sandinista government and the other guerrillas in the area is not useful because what the region needs is political change to become stabilized and pacified, you know. The military dictatorships were completely, you know, Uh, unacceptable before that. So the re the Mexican reasoning was we need political change and we need social change and we need economic change in Central America if we want to have a stable and peaceful region. And the U.S. policy is doing the opposite by being so aggressive, so um, intervening, so anti uh, the Nicaraguan government, etc., Awesome. So I think that pretty much covers most of my Cold War questions. The only end to kind of shift to more uh, modern relations would be how did the end of the Cold War um, affect U.S.-Mexico uh, relations, good or bad? Okay. Well, um, I think if uh, if we had thought this question before the end of the Cold War, we would have um, probably said a lot, you know, it's going to change completely. But Of course, some things changed, but probably continuities are very enduring. I would say that what changed most um, U.S.-Mexico relations was, it coincided with the end of the Cold War, but it was the signing of NAFTA. Okay. You know, the signing of NAFTA um, created new perceptions of each other's country and created new narratives of the bilateral relationship. I mean, you cannot see all what happened without seeing that the Cold War ended. Because in a way, when the Cold War ended, uh, the Mexican government was in a terrible economic crisis. And um, the Mexican president wanted to attract investment from Europe and Japan. But since the, end, since the Cold War ended, Western Europe was really interested in reconstructing Eastern Europe. So they would not be an option for Mexico. And Japan proved not to be another option. So this made President Salinas decide that the only alternative to uh, improve Mexico's economic performance, trade, investment, etc., was the United States. So, you know, he turned to the United States and for the first time, you know, the United States found that Mexico wanted to choose the liberal economic model that the United States always um, pretended that Mexico did during the Cold War, and Mexico never did. So I think that was one of the most important uh, changes. But I have to say that 
um, even so, the, the liberal agenda that the United States pushed forward very strongly in the 1990s was free trade, democracy, and human rights. And Mexico only complied with the free trade uh, part. No democracy took, well, it did, but, you know, informally. Um, democracy was not a subject, an issue, and human rights was not an issue. You know, sort of Mexico came late to the liberal agenda and to democratizations, which was probably in, in 2000. So the, obviously, I, it was the early 90s that Mexico had a severe economic crisis, so NAFTA was super crucial to... Um, liberalizing Mexico's economy and um, kind of helping it shift um, towards that. Um, what kind of role did the U.S. play in that? Or is that more of Mexico pushing the U.S. to pursue free trade? Mm. Well, the opening of Mexico's economy actually took place in the mid-80s because of another economic crisis, terrible economic crisis, the debt crisis, which began in 1982. But real changes started taking place, let's say, by 1985. And we finally joined GATT in 1986. So I would say that um, in that sense, Mexico's economic opening was not entirely conditioning free. You know, when Mexico's economy almost collapses in the early 80s, all the negotiations with the IMF and all the negotiations with the United States required that Mexico opened up um, its, its economic model. So in a way, it was that Mexico had no choice. And in a way, it was that the United States was finally sort of imposing the liberal economy agenda on Mexico, so it was a, like a, a two-way um, process. Uh, Mexico had no other cho cho choice, and the U.S. was sort of, um, you know, um, achieving its preferences regarding Mexico's economy. Now, the decision to to negotiate NAFTA, apparently, the United States had proposed Mexico a free trade agreement before, I can't remember whether it was the 80s or the 70s, and Mexico, of course, said, no way, you know, we have a, a closed economy, we, 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 we rely on import substitution, no free trade here. Um, and apparently, in the 1990s, um, it was the Mexican government who went to the U.S. and said, well, listen, um, would you be interested in negotiating and signing a free trade agreement? And um, the U.S. agreed, and, and that's how uh, negotiations initiated. Okay, cool. Um, so what were um, some of the legacies, both good and bad, of uh, Mexico's democratization process and the shift to kind of a more neoliberal economy? Mm. Well, the consequences in terms of economics, you know, I'm not an economist, but economists sort of argue uh, very much among themselves uh, regarding benefits and costs. Uh, Apparently, yes, NAFTA was very successful in what its purpose was. That was to promote free trade and to create the institutions so that free trade could flow really free, you know. And uh, in that sense, yes, trade between Mexico and the United States grew immensely. And um, the institutions to sort of uh, regulate this trade 
worked relatively okay. Um, but on the other hand, the criticism goes to um, NAFTA dividing Mexico into an industrialized and rich north and an impoverished south, you know, that did not get the benefits of free trade, of new industries, investment, etc. In that sense, I think one has to um, ask oneself if this was really the, the, the consequence of NAFTA or the consequence that the Mexican government was not able to design economic public policies to modify the um, uh, damaging effects that NAFTA would create. And I think it's a mixture, mixture of both. Yes, NAFTA benefited some, you know, at the expense of others. But yes, the Mexican government, I think, has a responsibility for not designing public policies to accompany, you know, all this economic change and not um, damage the uh, already poor and, um, you know, uh, yeah, poor sectors in, in, in the country. So that's, you know, it depends on who you ask, you know, the answer whether NAFTA was really good or NAFTA was really bad. Mm -hmm. um, of course, um, now that we, um, this is very interesting, the, the current government, the current president who sort of seems to go against neoliberalism in every single way, um, was very keen on renegotiating NAFTA and signing the USMCA. So you can see that trade is so important to Mexico that even though it's a new liberal project, it, it is still going on. And in terms of democratization, I think um, I would say that probably the consequences in general were, were good. You know, we, 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 did, we had more political pluralism, freedom of expression, um, many things that we did not have before. Um, but the thing is, um, we are still constructing democracy. You know, we're, we're not yet at the stage of consolidated democracy. So you can still see a lot of deficient uh, workings of democracy in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Cool. So obviously that's um, super interesting on the economic side of things of U.S.-Mexico relations. Another um, big aspect of that has been uh, the war on drugs, I think. President Nixon called it the war on drugs in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. When did um, kind of the flow of drugs begin to seriously affect Mexico? And how do you think that's kind of affected uh, U.S.-Mexico relations? Mm. Well, drug trafficking has been part of Mexican-U.S. relations, I think, probably since forever. Um, but as you said, and I like the way you put it, uh, when did it become the war on drugs on the Mexican side as well, and how it be became a more, um, a more, um, a stronger part in Mexico-U.S. relations. Drug trafficking, I think, began really um, altering the bilateral relationship towards the perhaps the 1980s, when the U.S. government realized that many governmental officials, the, the police forces, etc., were involved in drug trafficking. You know that was something that was really unacceptable for the for the U.S. government, and uh, sort of explained why 
um, Mexico's effort to fight drug trafficking for many years had been unsuccessful, probably. Um, but as you say, the U.S. started calling the war on drugs long before we did. We actually resisted the term for many years um, because the the, um, the the U.S. perspective was to attack drugs um, militarily, mil militarily, yeah. you know, by, by military means. And in many ways, Mexico resisted this idea. Um, it, the truth is that Mexico started changing, you know, because probably because of very strong pressures from the United States, and to adopt this um, this perspective, this, this point of view. But it was, I think, during uh, Felipe Calderón's government, this was the second government by the PAN, the Partido Acción Nacional, and it was then when actually the Mexican president started talking about the war on drugs. And when the military went in full capacity to fight uh, drug trafficking. And I think that was a major coincidence between the United States and Mexico. That was when the two countries agreed that that was the perspective, you know, to understand the phenomenon and that that was the way to fight it. And they created what was called the Merida Initiative, which was actually a program by which the United States supported Mexico's war on drugs with equipment and by training police forces and the military, etc., not directly with money and not with troops like in the case of, of Colombia before. Um, but it was a great coincidence in terms of of, of perspectives, of how they understood the problem and how they were going to fight against it. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily U.S. pressure that led to this shift internally in Mexico. It was more of internal kind of change yeah. that makes it shift. Um, mm -hmm. Did that contribute to kind of the uptick in violence and the militarization um, kind of, and just in general, um, in terms of the war on drugs in Mexico itself? Well, that's what that's what the um, analysts, most analysts and critics of, of Calderón's uh, policies argue. Um, I'm not an expert on the subject, but yes, it's true that since uh, Calderón's government, the, the violence has increased, violation of human rights ha has increased, and uh, in general, um, you know, the, 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 the state of, of human rights crisis and insecurity in, in the country. This is not to say that before Calderón everything was fine. I mean, we, it was very insecure as well, and there was a lot of violence, etc. But I think from Calderón on, it has actually worsened. And um, yeah, I think um, that's what basically the common argument um, says. And the, the, one of the, the ideas is that Calderon, what he did was to attack the, the major cartels. And by doing so, instead of one capo, you know, who would control, you know, territorial, territory, territorial area or something, you have now many minor capos, you know. So violence between them increased and violence against society increased. So that could be um, a reasonable explanation of, of what happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, so another kind of part of 
U.S.-Mexico relations has been illegal immigration. Um, how has the kind of criminalization of the border, how has that kind of affected U.S.-Mexico relations um, and more on like the Mexico side of things? Because obviously they've had to deal with a lot of um, refugees from mm -hmm. Latin America dealing with gang violence and instability. Um, how has that affected both Mexico and um, U.S.-Mexico relations? Yeah. Well, very much, I would say, uh, to the point of... Um, of a change in Mexico's position. For many years, Mexico rejected this idea and this policy, US policy of criminalizing um, immigration. Of, of course, the cross is illegal because they don't have a visa, they don't have papers, whatever, but Mexico was really against the idea of criminalizing um, the migrants who came uh, to the United States and you know all the um, the, the, the consular offices along the region, they did their best to say, well, an immigrant is not a criminal, etc., etc. But what happened after Trump um, arrived into the, in, in the, into the White House and López Obrador became president has been, um, well, I believe quite a change in Mexico's position because now Mexico, of course, in terms of official language, does not believe that, uh, that, an that an immigrant is a criminal. But what we are doing, the way Mexican authorities are treating Central American immigration now in Mexico is really criminal in a way, you know, sort of avoiding them to, to, to walk along the country and to reach the, the northern border and uh, putting them in these uh, places which are uh, obviously very small for them, very, um, you know, with, with no uh, sanitary measure whatsoever. So um, that has been a huge change in terms of Mexico's policy towards migrants, but towards migrants even coming to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it was very shocking because when, when López Obrador arrived um, to, the, um, to the presidency in uh, December 2017, sorry, 2018, um, he said that her, his government was going to have an open door policy and that he invited migrants and that migrants were going to have a humanitarian visa and jobs and, you know, health, public health and public education. So migrants, you know, sort of continue to come. And, um, you know, when, they, when the, the, the government of the United States said that that was a completely unacceptable, Mexico's policy shifted in, you know, a matter of two or three months. It was completely different. And then we, we have the National Guard in the border, in the southern border, sort of containing migrants, persecuting migrants. And of course, we have the northern border very, very well watched over. So no one can actually cross. Uh, so I meant, I know you mentioned Trump. Um, I kind of want to follow up on that. How do you think Trump has affected U.S.-Mexico relations beyond um, just like immigration, for example, um, just economics or other policies? How do you think Trump well, has had an impact? at the beginning, it was really menacing. You know, we, 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 we saw a real threat in Trump because, you know, he said all the, that all of these policies were going to change. Immigration, no NAFTA, no new trade um, agreement, etc., but, you know, now, after some months, a year and something, I would say that um, it was very disrupting at the beginning, Trump's rhetoric and Trump's um, language and 
threat threats. Um, but um, in the end, the Mexican government has achieved what it wanted, which was the um, ratification of USMCA. So in that sense, I would say um, it hasn't changed that much, even though the the, the treaty has some differences from, from NAFTA. But I would say that, yes, as I just mentioned, the consequences in terms of immigration policies were great, but for Mexico, not necessarily for U.S.-Mexico relations. Mm -hmm. In terms of U.S.-Mexico relations, what we have now is a Mexican government, which is, um, this is a horrible thing to say, but which is um, quite happy, or if not happy, quite ready to comply with um, the U.S. Um, requests in terms of immigration. So that is a change in a way, you know, mm -hmm. that we say we have now, I should say, even a good relationship with Trump because, you know, everything has sort of calmed down and we are stopping the Central American migrants. The USMCA was done the way the United States wanted. So, you know, we're not sort of openly fighting anymore. Yeah, so I know you mentioned USMCA. Could you kind of just explain that a little bit? Because I know um, most of my listeners probably won't know what that is. So if uh -huh. you could kind of just explain that. Okay, yes, sure. Um, USMCA is, is United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. And this is um, not exactly the substitution of NAFTA, but the new treaty negotiated and trade treaty, free trade treaty, negotiated and ratified after Trump threatened to leave NAFTA. So in terms of the United States leaving NAFTA, it was renegotiated. And Trump did not want to call it a free trade agreement because he doesn't like free trade agreements. So that, that's why it's not like NAFTA 2 or, or you know, the renewal of NAFTA, but the USMCA um, agreement, trade agreement. Um, and, you know, in, in a way, it, it sort of, you know, does more or less what NAFTA used to do, which is to formalize and institutionalize all the trade, all trade relationships between Mexico, the United States and Canada and investment flows. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Uh, so to pivot back to Trump, um, do you think, you know, his rhetoric about the wall, do you think the wall or any of the immigration policies that he's pursued has been um, effective or um, beneficial for Mexico? No, none of them. None of them. All the, the idea of building a wall was a very, how should I say, very um, shocking to Mexico. You know, it was like, what do you mean a wall? Well, there is a wall already. I mean, he didn't know probably that there is a wall or a fence or however you want to call it, you know, in many, many parts of the, of the border. So it was really... Um, prejudicial to the last government, to the, the, the last pre-government, Peña Nieto's government, because all this rhetoric became internalized in Mexico. And, you know, public opinion and academics and um, governmental officials and everybody was having an opinion about the wall. Of course, everybody was against the wall. And that created... Um, uh, a very difficult situation for the Mexican government who really had to stand firm against Trump. And they couldn't do it. They tried to stay firm 
against Trump and at the same time they invited Trump so they tried to negotiate with Trump and this was really very badly taken by public opinion so they criticized the government a lot so it was basically a disaster. Uh, but the rhetoric of the wall, yes, it had, didn't have any good consequences for Mexico at all. And the, the way in which López Obrador, the new president, has treated the, 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 the problem is by not saying anything. So Trump says something about the wall, and López Obrador refuses to comment on that. Mm -hmm. So in that sense... He has been criticized, you know, for being a coward, not standing up to Trump, not being nationalist enough, etc. But on the other hand, it has kept U.S.-Mexican relations sort of peaceful in a way. Um, so that's um, about the wall. And in terms of immigration, as I said, it has had terrible consequences um, in terms of Mexico changing its own immigration policies towards the Central Americans. Uh, so obviously you don't think that President Trump's um, immigration policies have been effective. What are some solutions that you think um, both countries can pursue in making immigration safer or just improving it, whether it's working bilaterally or um, in individual countries? Mm. Well, that's a very difficult question. Um, I guess one partial solution um, would be to have a bilateral agreement like the one Mexico and the U.S. had in the from the 40s to the 60s, the Bracero Agreement, mm -hmm. by which Mexico can send workers to the U.S. You know, for a period of time or for a year, six months, whatever, as they are needed, but they come legally and they work legally and they have certain benefits and everything. Um, this was possible because of the Second uh, World War, but ever since, ever since 1964, 65, when the U.S. Uh, denounced the agreement, it has been like um, some sort of wishful thinking because the United States claims that immigration is a domestic issue and that the government is sovereign to decide who comes into the country and who doesn't, and they're not interested in the bilateral agreement. That would mean uh, um, um, accepting that immigration is a bilateral issue, and for the U.S., immigration is not a bilateral issue, it's a national issue. Um, so probably that would be a partial solution, but it's almost impossible. And on the other hand, um, given the, the, the Central American violence and the Central American crisis uh, now, um, probably the United States should think more seriously how to do something in terms of helping Central American countries uh, fight insecurity, violence, poverty, underdevelopment, etc. Because nowadays, Mexican immigration to the United States is really not significant. It's really the Central Americans who are migrating in, in masses, you know? So I think probably the U.S. should consider a more serious and committed and long-term policy in Central America. It's, no, it's not easy, probably it's also wishful thinking. Um, the Mexican government wants to do that and wants to include the United States. And so they, they can have like a program, the United States, Mexico, and the so-called Northern Triangle, 
Guatemala, uh, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. Um, sorry, not Nicaragua, Honduras, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm now confused. Uh, yes, and um, um, of course the U.S. is very hesitant to agree with this Mexican proposal. And, of course, the Central Americans are also very dubious about, you know, accepting this program with Mexico or dealing directly with the United States and what they are willing to um, accept from the United States or not. But I think those would be partial solutions. Of course, you also need Mexico to grow more economically and to distribute better um, income, you know, inequality is really terrible. And of course, Mexico has a huge challenge in fighting violence so that Mexicans do not migrate again now because of violence and not necessarily the economic situation. Awesome. So um, kind of to conclude, what do you think U.S.-Mexico relations are going to look like over the next decade, um, whether that's in regard to immigration or policy towards Latin America or um, economically in terms of trade? Um, yeah, so anything just regarding over kind of what U.S.-Mexico relations will look like uh, over the next decade? Okay, well, um, probably in terms of economics, my guess is that uh, integration will continue. You know, integration will continue in terms of trade, investment, etc. Despite the fact that probably the U.S. economy is not going to be as strong, for example, as China or any other country. But I don't see the Mexican government right now finding or looking for China as an alternative to the United States. I see that they are still thinking that the U.S. is really the alternative. So in that sense, I think integration is, is going to continue. And also with that economic integration, I also think that um, another um, phenomenon is um, social integration. You know, there are so many Mexican-Americans now in this country that um, this country is changing demographically and it's going to change socially because of the presence of Mexicans. But uh, that also has consequences in Mexico, you know, because now you have a different class, which is Mexican-Americans or category or however you want to call it, which um, is completely new, you know, and um, can also in a way affect for good or for bad what's happening in Mexico. You know, they can, they can contribute with investment or helping their families, or they can actually reject any link with, with Mexico, you know, because they resented having to left or whatever. So I think in whatever happens, there will be more economic and social integration. No, no there, it is really difficult to find a Mexican family who has not have or has a member of the family in the U.S. right now, you know, mm -hmm. as immigra undocumented immigration, legal immigration, you know, studying or whatever. So I think that will continue to grow, economic and social integration. In terms of immigration, I actually, I don't know what will happen, you know, because as long as you have all these numbers for, of, of Central Americans living, you know, for their lives, um, it's, it's going to become... At some point, well, it, it is becoming now also um, an explosive situation in Mexico. 
you know, in terms mm -hmm. of all these people there, uh, no sanitary conditions, no education, no health, uh, very resentful, trying to get into the United States, and they can get into the United States. So that's going to be, I think, very prejudicial. And as long as nothing happens in Central America, I don't see how this is going to change. Mm -hmm. um, trade, immigration, in, in terms of organized crime, I also don't see any joint strategy between Mexico and the United States. Iniciativa Merida, I think, is basically dying. No one talks about Iniciativa Merida anymore. I'm not sure whether Trump is interested in supporting an initiative like that. Um, and we don't have any idea what the strategy of the current Mexican government will be. So I... I don't know what will happen in terms of, of um, organized crime, drug trafficking, or weapons coming from the U.S. to Mexico. Uh, there is no agreement on that subject, and I don't think there will be in, in the short term. So my guess is that we will continue sort of living in this scenario whereby we just have to be like... Um, like the fire brigade, you know, a fire comes and then we had to negotiate Mexico and the United States to see how this fire is put down. And then another fire comes and that is more or less my guess. I hope I'm wrong, but um, I just don't see very clearly now. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So that pretty much wraps up most of the questions regarding just U.S.-Mexico uh, relations in general. But I did want to ask you what has been kind of the most interesting part of uh, your research and what your focus has really been. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, most interest my research. Hmm. Well, as I said before, probably sort of... Um, Reconstructing all these decisions and all these old story about Mexican foreign policy, not necessarily just towards the United States, towards mm -hmm. Cuba or uh, Guatemala in 1954, or uh, you know the Central America in the 1970s or 80s, to see that with more historical perspective, with more primary resources and try to understand the way in which uh, decisions were taken and policies were designed, you know. Um, I think that has been very interesting because it sort of uh, dilutes, in a way, many myths created around Mexican foreign policy and U.S.-Mexican relations and U.S.-Cuban relations and, you know, well, Mexican foreign policy in general. So I think that would be, that that probably has been the most interesting part of, of my research. Awesome. So final question is, well, my question, but is there anything else you would like to add uh, for our listeners in terms of U.S.-Mexico relation, uh, relations or, you know, research that um, you've done or mm. anything regarding that? Mm. Well, I would only say that if they're interested in Mexico-U.S. relations, uh, they should benefit from all the resources in this country. You know, you have access to documents, previously confidential documents, archives, many, many, you know, the press. You have many resources here to see one part of the story. Of course, we cannot see the other part, which is the Mexican side, because we, we don't have the, the, the archival system that, that you have. But at least when you look at the U.S. papers and the, the, at the U.S. 
um, you know, biographies and things, you can understand one point of view. You know, the other is more challenging because you have to understand the Mexican point of view with fewer resources. It can be done and it has been done, uh, but it's definitely more challenging. And um, then sort of to try and understand the, the, the problems, the issues, the policies from a more perhaps subjective point of view. I don't know how to say that. Well, objectivity doesn't really exist, but, um, you know, without sort of letting us influence from just media positions or the news or the internet or whatever, but just going to see more or less the facts as the protagonists understood them. Awesome. So uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day uh, mm -hmm. to talk about this. Uh, I think this is going to be super uh, helpful uh, for my listeners learning about uh, U.S.-Mexico uh, relations uh, from the Cold War to now. So mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we just had that super interesting interview with Dr. Anna Covarrubias. Um, probably one of my favorite interviews so far because I think uh, the U.S.-Mexico rule, you U.S.-Mexico relationship is really overlooked in kind of contemporary politics because it's one of those relationships that's super close, but you don't necessarily think about despite, you know, everything that has gone on. And I think we have one of the most complex and unique histories with the U.S., uh, with the United States and Mexico. And it was also super useful kind of listening from a different perspective. Obviously, most American scholars, you know, talk about U.S.-Mexico relationships from the perspective of Mexico, It was, or from the perspective of the United States. It was super interesting um, to listen to someone from the Mexican perspective of things and how, you know, different policies within the United States and Mexico have kind of influenced how she writes, um, how she's researched, and the different things that she looks at. So that's something that I thought was super interesting. Another thing that I think was cool was, you know, understand the complexities of this relationship beyond just, you know, our relationship after the Cold War. You know, our relationship with Mexico um, during the Cold War is super unique because of the way that Mexico pursued an alternative policy to combating, you know, communism, but also the way that Mexico pursued its policies in terms of, you know, trying to find, as Dr. Corrubius um, stated, an equilibrium between satisfying both the left and both the right, which is kind of the same thing that happens um, in the United States right now. Now, in terms of immigration, I think some of the things that she has mentioned was super unique, how complex the issue is. Um, and it's really all about finding sort of middle ground between how to help countries where the vast majority of immigrants are coming from. And like I said, I think it's super interesting that immigration is affecting Mexico just as much as the United States has because you have so many people coming from Latin American countries, from Africa, from South America, coming through Mexico to try and get to the United States. And as she's mentioned, this has led to a very large influx of immigrants into uh, Mexico, and it's very difficult for the Mexican government to find jobs for these people to kind of come up with different um, things that, you know, these people can do. And it's something that's really affecting, you know, U.S.-Mexico relations in ways that I think people don't necessarily realize. Um, and to finally summarize, I didn't want to talk too much 
uh, I definitely want to mention, um, go follow us on our Instagram at history does you, uh, you can also, uh, if you could like share this episode on my social media accounts, tell your friends about it. I would definitely encourage you, uh, to talk about it because, um, I hope this kind of helps get a better understanding of us Mexico relations and also educate people on how and make better informed decisions, whether it's voting, um, whether it's coming up with, uh, you know, writing about U.S.-Mexico relations. I think it's great to hear from someone who is, in my opinion, one of the leading experts on U.S.-Mexico relations. Um, and it, really, this has been one of my favorite interviews so far. Um, yeah, so once again, go follow us at History Does You. Feel free um, to like, share this podcast, and, and tell your friends about it. Um, and this has definitely, and listen to, again, one of the leading experts on U.S.-Mexico relations. And this uh, concludes episode seven of um, regarding U.S.-Mexico relations.